If you have your Bible, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. That's where we will read our scripture today. So today we're reading from John, chapter 14. We'll read from verses 7 through 15. You could track along up here if you want to, or you could track along in a hard copy. There's one in front of you as well. John 14, verse 7 says this. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. But Philip, confused, he said, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. And Jesus said to them, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you still not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, what is that? What is he saying? Now listen to me. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me and the works that I do, he will also do. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Amen. Before we dive into the Gospel of John, John chapter 14, I'm going to go to another letter that John the Apostle wrote and just read a verse. It says this, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And by this, the love of God was made known to us, that God sent his only born son into the world so that we might live through him. And that this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the satisfaction for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Amen. Let me just pray real quick, and then we will uh, dive, jump right in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Um, I thank you for my church. I I just love this church. I've been part of this church for almost 30 years. Uh, And Lord, I just thank you for us. I thank you for the family that you've brought together here. I thank you for those that are here for the first time. I pray for them. I pray for those that have been here for uh, 50 or 60 years. Lord, I pray that we would have love for one another and fellowship Lord, that you would be glorified and that we would be edified in our faith. I thank you for your son and your gospel that you gave to us. I pray that we would believe and follow you. Lift us up in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we shift gears. We shift gears from fragile to fruitful. How many of you have ever driven a stick shift car before okay i'm about the only one that has it okay believe it or not when i was a teenager that was all the rage but i never got a stick shift but what must you do in order to go from first to second gear you must push down the clutch that's what we're going to do today Today, what I want you to do is I want you to shift from a fragile faith, a faith of a porcelain dish ready to drop at the first moment of trial or tragedy or disappointment. I want you to shift from a faith that is fragile to one that is fruitful. But how do we do that? How do we shift? What is the clutch that we must have? 
In the 1940s, there were two young, promising evangelists. One was thought to be more charismatic than the other. One showed more promise. One showed more upside. The more promising of the two was named Charles, and the other was named William. Charles, in the 1940s, was thought to show more promise. He had better looks. He had more charisma. He had bigger rallies. He had livelier sermons. In fact, Charles, in his early 30s, went to preach at a seminary, and he walked out of that seminary, hailed to be the next great evangelist of his time. Yet Charles was a porcelain dish. Charles began to have doubts. He slowly allowed those doubts to crack his faith, and eventually it slowly destroyed his faith, and his faith began to sink like an old rusty ship. And what was once alive and what was once shown tons of promise was slowly sunk underneath questions of doubt and disappointment. And by 1957, this young man named Charles, this great young evangelist, he actually became an atheist. And he turned out to be an enemy of the faith, writing books against Christianity. But the other evangelist was named William. The lesser of the two in the 1940s was named William. He stood the test of time. He stood firm. And he became, as you know, the greatest, most fruitful evangelist of the 20th century. Few remember Charles, and everyone remembers William. The two evangelists of the 1940s were Charles Templeton and a young Billy Graham. Some of you here today are Charles Templeton, and some of you here today are Billy Graham. Some of you here have the faith of a porcelain dish, ready to crack at the first drop. Some of you here today feel just like the disciples do in John chapter 14, that you have maybe followed Jesus Christ for years and years and years and years, but over the last year or two years or last months or even the last few days, it could come on quickly. Perhaps there are questions that come into your mind that you can't answer. Perhaps you feel right now you feel weak. Maybe you feel apathetic towards this whole Jesus thing. Maybe you feel scared. Maybe you don't know what to believe. If we're all really honest, if we all really just kind of take down the walls and actually look at the faith that we have inside of our soul, that we each have come up to the edge of the cliff, that we each had moments in our life where our faith hung on by a thread a man that I deeply respect. He's one of the great mentors and men of my life. He said to me recently that he has quit Christianity a hundred times. Maybe today you feel like, just like the disciples do in John chapter 14, that you have been faithful, but there is just something that is missing. Maybe you had at one time a great glowing faith that you felt passionate for the Lord, but over the last decade your faith has dimmed, so to speak. So today what I offer to you is what Jesus offers to them in John chapter 14. Now I offer to you today four spiritual disciplines to strengthen your faith. Because I want you to think about something. That strengthening your faith isn't really up to your church. Strengthening your faith is not up to the Spirit of God. Strengthening your faith isn't about having more answers. Strengthening your faith is up to you. Strengthening your faith is up to And the daily choices that you make. What are the daily choices that we must make? What are the spiritual disciplines that cause us to go from a fragile faith to a fruitful faith? That's what we see in John chapter 14. So if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 14. As you you know, 
Today we encounter the Upper Room Discourse, and Jesus, as we said last week, addresses 11 fragile disciples. When we walk into John 14, we see these disciples, their hope now feels like a vapor in the wind, ready to disappear. But as we kind of step a foot into this chapter, let us kind of go from here to all the way specifically to our passage today. Let us kind of remember the context of John chapter 14. If you do not have, if you've been here for any length of time in the Gospel of John, and you don't have this verse memorized probably or highlighted in the least, I would encourage you to do so. What is the purpose of the Gospel of John? What is the overarching theme of the Gospel of John? It's John chapter 20, verse 31. But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in His name. They're all of the stories, all of the words, all of the verses point towards this one purpose. Think about the Gospel of John at this point. Jesus is proven to be the Son of God over and over again, but especially in the prologue in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. He's proven to be the Christ in John chapter 1, verse 19 through the end of chapter 12. And he proves that he is worthy to believe in from John chapter 13 through the end of the book. And when we come into John chapter 14, where are we in the New Testament? That we're in the middle of something called the Upper Room Discourse. That John chapter 13 through 17 is a section of Scripture that is just magnificent and deep that we see so many theological truths in john chapter 13 through 17 and when we see this jesus just has told his disciples that he is leaving that he's disappearing that he's going back to his father so if you're a disciple what are you feeling we talked about this last week you're feeling probably terrified scared nervous anxious you don't know what to believe anymore because here is this guy named jesus that you followed for three years that you gave up your father's fishing business to follow here's this jesus and he is disappearing but things get worse because your best friend named judas is the one to betray him your leader amongst the 12 named peter is the will deny him and probably deny even knowing you so if you're philip which we encountered today you have a fragile faith. You are shaky, nervous, anxious. And what does Jesus do? Jesus knows exactly how they are feeling, and he communicates to them exactly what they need. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, he gives them promises of hope. But as we talked about last week, he just zooms in on John chapter 14, verse 6, to talk about the person, the foundation of our faith. And who is Jesus? He's not three things, he's four things. Jesus says, I am. That means he is Yahweh, that he is God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So he kind of sets up for them, this is the foundational person of your faith. And then today, he unpacks foundational disciplines. And that's what I hope that you adopt today. So if you have your Bible, you want to, I would invite you to look at it very quickly. We see four foundational dis- disciplines. One is found in verses 7 through 12. One is found in verses 13 and 14. One is found in verse 15. And one is found in verses 16 and 17. You'll see four disciplines to strengthen your faith. Notice the first discipline to a fruitful life, verses 7 through 12. Jesus is speaking here. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. I'm going to pause right there before we go on to verse 9. What kind of statement is that in verse 7? It says, if you had known me. That is a conditional statement. That if the disciples truly had known Jesus Christ, then what would have happened? They would have known the Father. 
Let's go a little bit deeper to that. What is Jesus inferring? He's inferring that him and the Father are one. But how can that be possible? John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus proclaims himself to be Yahweh. I am who I am. The God of all gods. And that him and the Father are of one essence, yet they are distinct persons. There is a uh, Trinitarian tension that we see throughout John chapter 14 in, in this one verse. I'll add this. It says, so perfect was the correspondence between the life of Jesus and the will of the Father, that to know Jesus was to know his Father. As a perfect son, Jesus revealed with total accuracy the person of the Father, as one scholar adds. But notice Philip is a little bit confused, clearly. Notice verse 8. I love Philip's question and statement because I would be there right with him. Philip, he said, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Wait, what did he just get done saying that if you knew him, then you would know the Father. But Philip says, wait, show us the Father's. Now, Philip is clearly confused. He doesn't quite understand the, the triune nature of God. And let's just be brutally honest here. The triune nature of God, that God is one essence, yet three distinct persons. We believe in panthe- we understand pantheism and we understand monotheism. We don't understand how God can be one, yet three distinct persons. And so Philip is clearly confused. But what is Philip really asking for? Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. What is he really asking for? In this Jewish culture, and the culture of the first century, they were taught that no one could see God and live. So no wonder they are confused. So Philip petitions Jesus to show them the Father. In other words, what? That, to give them another burning bush. That Philip wanted to see God. He wanted to see a manifestation of God's glory. So I could just imagine Jesus, they're up in the upper room, and he's like, okay, you want me to put a burning bush right here in the middle of the room, Philip? This is confusing. Philip wants to see some kind of physical sign of the Father, but what he doesn't realize is that Jesus is the representation of the Father. But I want you to look again at verse 8. I want to see the very nature and character of the God that we worship. Philip said to him, verse 8, Philip, he said, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. I love how approachable Jesus is and how God is. Because to us, that is a, we would call a stupid question. That is a dumb thing to say. Of course, we can't have a burning bush in the upper room. That's a little weird, Philip. But I love how approachable Jesus is. You know, I want you to think about something. If Jesus Bible-thumped them all the time, if he constantly belittled them, would Philip have had the guts to even say such a statement? I think sometimes that we, we kind of, in our culture, we kind of place the shame that we find in our culture upon the statements of Jesus, but I don't think there's shame there when Jesus rebukes the disciples. He does it in complete love. And Philip clearly is comfortable enough to say something a little bit weird. Let me just say something. Okay. How many of you have ever had, how many of you had a father or a boss that clobbered you for dumb questions? Okay. Some of us have had those types of bosses and fathers that they would just ridicule us for a dumb question. What do you do? 
You never ask them a question again, right? Okay. So, but see, we don't see that here in the Gospel of John. Verse 8 tells me about the very nature of God, that God is approachable. That he wants to hear from his children. That God is gentle, that he is loving, that he is a good father who wants his children to come to him with questions, with their prayers. Doesn't that comfort you? That we have a God that wants us to approach him, that is gentle to us. God is shown throughout the pages of the New Testament to encourage us, to invite us, to allow us to bring our sin and our concerns before the very throne of God. Not that we would heap shame upon our shoulders, but that he could forgive us and comfort us in a time of need. What does this say? In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, there, the, the, this type of verse is all over the New Testament. Matthew chapter 11 is a good one. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Matthew chapter 11 says, Come to me, not for shame, not to be embarrassed, but come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. We often view our Heavenly Father like we did our earthly father. We view our Heavenly Father like our earthly father. But God is not our earthly father. He is a perfect father, wanting his children to come to him with their sin and with their shame and with their questions. I was, um, I'm just going to speak personally for just a second. I, it was Thursday morning, and uh, the Lord kind of woke me up at 5.30 in the morning. Now, I'm not an early riser. I usually go to bed at 5.30. I'm just kidding. But I, I, I'm a night owl. I go to bed like at like, <laughs> like 11 or midnight. Okay. So I'm like, wait, what? He must be tired. Okay. Um, but the, I was at 5.30 in the morning, and I just woke up. And I was just, my mind was racing. And I'll be honest, man, my heart was not in a right place. And then I kind of got along with the Lord. I started praying, started having a quiet time. And then I turned to John chapter 14, verse 8, and I saw Philip and his dumb question. And I saw how Jesus responded to him. And I just felt like the Lord would say, just give, give it to me. Give me your anger. Give me your bitterness. Let me lift it off of your shoulders. You know, friends, God isn't distant. He isn't grumpy. He is listening and he is wanting his children to ask him, to confess their sins to him. Verse 9, notice how Jesus responds to them. And I think sometimes we heap shame into this statement, but I don't think it's there. Verse 9, I think it's just an attitude of love. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding me does his work. Once again, we see this Trinitarian tension here. Jesus and the Father, 
in the spirit of one essence. You have three distinct persons. And notice verse 9 that Jesus displays the Father. He displays the character and holiness of God. He speaks from the Father. Verse 10, he does nothing on his own initiative. And Jesus does the works of the Father. I'm going to kind of hop off a, hop, hop on a rabbit trail real quick, and I discussed this a little bit last week, but I just see it in the scripture, especially in John chapter 14. And let me just say it. The triune nature of God, that there is one essence, yet three distinct persons, is a non-negotiable of the Christian faith. You can't compromise that. There is a very famous preacher in America that does not believe in one essence, yet three distinct persons. He is a modalist. Now, what in the world is that? If you go on to this guy's website, it's, it's public knowledge. I'm, I couldn't believe it. He believes in one God, yet three manifestations or three modes. And some of you are saying, what's the problem with that? Well, then the Father isn't fully God, the Son isn't fully God, and the Spirit isn't fully God. We believe in one God that has one essence, yet three distinct persons. The triune nature of God is a non-negotiable doctrine of the Christian faith. You can't, you die on that hill. Okay, I'm going to say it that way. If anybody disagrees with one and three, three and one, whatever, however you want to say it, if anybody disagrees with that, you fight. You die on that hill. Please do. Because it is a non-negotiable doctrine. Why? I'm going to say two reasons. Number one is because Jesus himself claimed to be God, and if he if he's not fully God, then he lied and he can't pay for our sin, right? But then how could God be a God of love before mankind if there wasn't three in one? He wouldn't understand love. But the, the triune nature of God shows that he is a God of love. But then notice the first discipline. I haven't, I'm 20 minutes in and I haven't even talked about the disciplines that we should have to strengthen our faith. Notice John chapter 14, verse 11. It says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly. Notice those. He says that all the time in the original language. Amen, amen. He is calling attention. It's basically me saying, now listen to me. Okay? That's what Jesus is saying. Now, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me and the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do. I want you to notice what one word is repeated three times in verse 11 and 12. It is the word believe. Believe me. Believe because of the works. Believe in me. That Greek word believe is the Greek word pistuo. And there it's, it's, it's the same word as the Greek word for faith, which means pistis. So you have the pistuo and pistis are the same word, but they're, one is a verbal form and one is a noun. And we don't have a word to really relate from faith to f- believing. So it would basically be me saying faith and faithing. That would be the verbal, verbal form of that word, but there's no such thing as faithing if you want to look educated in this life. Um, but what is Jesus encouraging them to believe? Number one, he's encouraging them to believe in the triune nature of God. I am the Father, and the Father is in me, and he's encouraging them to believe in the works that Jesus has done. What is the first discipline to a really strengthening faith? A strengthening spiritual life? Pause. I want you to notice verse 12. Notice it says again, this is a really confusing verse, and many of us kind of take rip it, that thing right out of context, and probably many of you are probably wondering what that even means. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. What is he saying? That Jesus is telling them that after the Helper comes, that they will perform greater works than he. Why? 
Because he goes to the Father, but the Spirit is in them and working through them to work the miracle of conversion. Converting souls only done through the Spirit of God can regenerate a soul. Converting a soul from darkness to light is the greatest miracle of all. It's the power of a regenerate soul going from darkness to light is far more miraculous than just feeding 5,000. I want you to think about Acts chapter 2. Greater works that they can do than he, because he goes back to the Father. What happens in Acts chapter 2? Do you have these meek and fragile, weak disciples, and then they get the Holy Spirit, and then they walk, and then Peter preaches a sermon, and thousands of people are converted to Jesus Christ. One scholar says this, that conversion is the miracle of miracles, that it requires nothing less than the supernatural involvement of God and the inner reaches of the human soul. What is the first discipline to a strong fruitful spiritual life it is faith what does he say believe 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 he is encouraging them in john chapter 14 verses 11 through 12 to believe in his works and if they don't believe in his words then believe in the miracles themselves faith is required to live a fruitful christian life without faith it is impossible to please god Can, we just, can I just speak for just a second? We as human beings, we are control freaks. Okay, We like to just control everything about our life, but there are so many things in life that you just cannot control. You will never have all of your questions answered, and that is okay. You will never fully understand why God allows terrible things to happen, and that's okay. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to control everything. That is why we must live by faith, that without faith it is impossible to please God. That if you want to live a fruitful Christian life, a necessary part of that is faith, is believing in the very character and nature of God, that He will keep His promises, that He loves you, that He's given His Spirit to you to help and to guide you. It is impossible to please God without faith. I think we have this hope that, you know, we, we can't fully understand everything on earth. Why does God allow terrible things to happen to us? We can't understand everything that happens to us. And I think we have this hope that when we get to heaven, that everything will make sense. But it might not. And that's okay. We walk by faith and not by sight. We are encouraged to have the faith of a child. Uh, my five-year-old, Bryn, is uh, wonderful and spunky, and she likes to uh, cause her dad to lose more hair. Um, but, but Bryn, my five-year-old, she trusts me. She has pastuo. She believes in me and trusts me as her father. I recently saw her playing with a knife. Now, parents in the room, I'm sure you've all encountered that. What do I immediately do? I immediately chastise her to put the knife down. And so she takes this knife and she lays it on the counter. Why? She doesn't know why. She doesn't understand why I told her to put the knife, but I know why. And she trusts me because she knows that I love her and I care for her. Friends, listen to me. God is a loving father, a perfect father that asks us to trust him by faith. Your heavenly father is not your earthly father. 
Your Heavenly Father is perfect, and He loves you, and He showed His love for you on the cross, and He asks us to trust Him. When we do not trust Him, doubts begin to creep in. When we do not trust Him, sin rears its ugly head. When we do not trust God, we become anxious, stressed out. When we don't trust Him, our faith becomes fragile, like a porcelain dish, ready to crack at the first drop. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. How can we shift from a fragile faith, from a fragile life to a fruitful life? It is by having unshakable faith. But then notice the second discipline in verses 13 and 14. I'm going to camp on verse 13 a little bit. Notice what it says. It says, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I want you to do, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to actually look at your text, and I'm, I'm going to be all techie and sophisticated right there. I want you to look at that word, whatever. That word, whatever, is actually really emphatic in the original language. What it is, is actually three different words that Jesus uses to reemphasize his point. He literally says, whatever, whatever, ever. Three words say the same thing. What is he trying to do? He's saying that whatever you ask, please just ask me. Have you ever heard the question, there's no such thing as a dumb... Have you ever had somebody say, there's no such thing as a dumb question? Yeah. There's no such thing as a dumb prayer. That whatever is on our mind and our heart, whatever it is, whatever, ever, ever you want, ask of the Lord because He is a good Father. And notice the promise that is associated with it. That will I do. That is a future verb, indicative mood, mood of certainty. So whatever you ask in my name, just ask it. That will I do. But that's inconsistent with life. So we, we know that we're supposed to ask God of anything. We are supposed to come to our good Father and know that He is loving, that He cares for us as His children. And then He says in John chapter 14, verse 13, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. He will answer our prayer, but that seems inconsistent with our life. Because we ask God things all the time that He doesn't seem to answer. How do we reconcile life with truth? I suspect that when we pass on to the next life, eternal life, that we will look back and see all of the ways that God has answered our prayers. But our Father wants us to just ask Him whatever, ever, ever. Ha-ti-on is what the original language literally says. Whatever you ask, just ask it. In my name, that will I do. Shifting from a porcelain faith to a bulletproof faith or a Kevlar faith requires us to have unshakable faith in an unstoppable prayer life. As I've already mentioned, I want to go a little bit deeper into your personal walk with the Lord what is the foundational element for us having an unshakable faith and an unstoppable prayer life? The foundation is our understanding of the very character of God. Perhaps all of your questions, all of your doubts stem from your view of God. Let me just ask you the question, 
How do you see your father, your heavenly father? Is he some absent guy? Is he mean? Is he deaf to your ear? Maybe he is present with you. You know that he is, but you feel like he never pays attention. Do you see your father as one that expects perfection? Our view of our earthly father is often how we view our heavenly father. But friends, listen to me. Do not discount God's character based on a flaw of your own earthly father. See God the Father for who he truly is, that he is a God of love, that he is gentle, that he has given you faith, that he wants you to trust him, that he wants you to ask him of the requests that are in the deepest recesses of your heart sometimes. If we had a really difficult father, one that was very oppressive, then what do we typically do? We then take all of our sin and all of our shame, and we kind of hide it away in a closet, hoping that God the Father, our Heavenly Father, doesn't see it. But our Father in Heaven is perfect, and he wants us to come to him and confess our sins so that we can be cleansed from all unrighteousness. How can you shift from a fragile life to a fruitful one? It is to have unshakable faith and an unstoppable prayer life. But then notice verse 15. Verse 15 says this. If you ask, this is verse 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you, ask, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I want you to notice, notice those two verses themselves. I put, purposely put them on the same slide here. This is verse 14 and this is verse 15. These are, in the original language, these are... Uh, identical in structure, but they are very different in syntact in this syntactical function. They are structurally identical, but they are syntactically different. Verse 14 is a cause and effect that if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The cause is us asking, and the effect is that he will answer. But then in verse 15, it's not really a cause and effect. It's more of an evidence and an inference. I know that's TMI. But if you love me, the evidence that you love me is what? That you will keep my commandments. This is not cause and effect. This is the evidence. How can you tell if you love God? That's what it says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In order to love God, we must keep His commandments by knowing them and by doing them. I'm going to share some commandments that the Lord has given to us, and I'm only going to share a few because uh, we don't need to be beat up too bad this morning. Okay, all right. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 says this, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only a word that is good for the edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will bring grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. But be kind to another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. In order to love God, we must keep His commandments. You can't truly love God unless you are obedient to God. As Vadi Bakum says, you better not say amen, you better say ouch, right? <laughs> Those are the commandments of Scripture. And we show that we love the Lord by keeping His commandments. 
Recently, I listened to a Q&A from John MacArthur. If you've ever seen those, they're actually really interesting. I probably wouldn't agree with every answer he ever comes up with, but the Q&A time is where people in his church kind of come to the microphone and ask him a question, and there was a little child, no more than probably eight or nine, and she walks up to this microphone, that brave little girl in front of hundreds of people, and she asks John MacArthur a very simple question. She says, how do I love God? And I'll never forget it. John, he kind of lowers his voice and he looks at this little girl and he says, is that your father behind you? And she said, yes. He says, how do you love him? He says, you love him by obeying what he tells you to do. That's the same way that we show that we love God. If we love God, you will keep his commandments. Let me say it a different way. External actions always start with internal convictions. Let me say that again. External actions always start with internal convictions. Our obedience to God reveals our love for God. Let me just speak, friends. If you are living in sin, if you are trapped by its chains, if you are not repentant, if you sin and you sin and you sin and you sin and you you do not repent from it, what does that reveal It reveals that you do not love God. Friends, listen to me. When I was studying this particular verse in mind, there was like 18,000 fingers pointing back at me because I realized something. If we, as Christians, if we continue to sin and we do not repent and we do not confess our sins to the Lord and we do not come to our good Father, if we are trapped by the chains of sin and death, What does that reveal? It reveals that we do not love God. It's what it says here in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The way that we show that we love God to one another, the way we show love to God to our spouse, is if we are obedient to the very commands of Scripture. And praise the Lord that we have a God that is love and is gracious and is merciful, that comes and lets us approach Him, the throne of grace, to confess our sins to but I'm a little bit confused. You know, this week I was, I kind of got to verse 15 and I just kind of asked myself the question, you know, okay, how do I love God? Because I see Matthew chapter 22 verse 37 and how do I, how do I marry that with John chapter 14 verse 15? Matthew chapter 22 verse 37 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your mind, and with all of your soul. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So how do I take that and then Fit it with John chapter 14, verse 15. How do we love God with our heart, mind, and soul, and or do we keep his commandments? Loving God is not either or, but is both and. That we love God with internal transformation. That we love God with our heart, mind, and soul that leads to external action. Let me say that again. We love God with internal transformation. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. We love him with internal transformation that leads to external actions. We love God first. How? By knowing him, by emoting for him, and then that then spills over into our actions as a Christian. So let me just say it this way. If you're struggling to obey the Lord, if you're struggling to keep his commandments, if there is just a, a sin that, that is, it haunts you, that keeps coming back and back and back and back and back, then let me just ask you a question. Do you know God with your mind? Do you love him with all you have? And do you really love him emotionally? 
do emote for him. Because I believe if we know God and we love God with passion, then the third follows suit, that we will keep his commandments. Because why? Because we will know him and we will have emotion and passion for him. Those two often link to let us be obedient to the call of Christ. Now, let me just speak as well. We kind of have this thing, and especially in Huntsville, because we're really smart people in this town. Amen. There's a lot of rocket scientists here, and good, because I'm glad you're here, because I would make a terrible car. Okay, it would just blow up on the first turn of the key. I love engineers. I was raised by one. But we're really smart. But we have this kind of thing where emotions are bad. That if you feel it's a bad thing, kind of like Spock in Star Trek. But emotions aren't bad because God is emotional. He gave it to us to feel, to have an affinity, to have an affection, to have a passion for him. And think about God himself. Think about his very nature. Not only is he a a loving God, a perfect father who wants his children to come to him, but what else is he? He is a very emotional God. (laughs) If you don't believe that God is emotional, then go read the Old Testament. He's zapping people. Okay? He, God hates sin and loves us. God is an emotional God. So how do we love God? We love God with internal transformation. We love the Lord God with our heart, mind, and soul, leading to external actions that if we love God, that we will keep his commandments. So how do we move from a fragile faith to a fruitful faith? We have an unshakable faith, an unstoppable prayer life, an unending obedience, and then we have verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may with you forever, that the Spirit is Spirit of truth, and the world cannot receive, because it does not see him and know him, but you know him because he abides with you. How do we move from fragile to fruitful? Discipline number four is that we have an unquenchable dependence upon the Spirit. The Spirit of God was sent here as our helper. He is our teacher. He helps us remember truth. But what does it require for us to really utilize the Spirit? We must be dependent and we must walk according to the Spirit. And I will talk about that more next week. I want you to think about something before I close. I want you to think about the Christian life itself. All Christians, all Christians, all Christians have the exact same thing. All Christians have the exact same thing. We all have the same scripture. We all have the spirit of God. We all have access to the Father and to Jesus. We all have at least initial faith to become a believer but how many of us have ever met a Billy Graham or, and also known a Charles Templeton? How many of us have seen a Christian that is just on fire, that is setting the world of, uh, afire, a Mount Everest Christian? And how many of us have seen a Christian that is an anthill? Mathis Mountain, okay? It's, it's some small little hill comparatively to Mount Everest. What's the difference between those two? Because think about it, all Christians have the same thing. We all have access to the Father. We all have the same scripture. We all have the Spirit of God. We all have initial faith to believe. So what is the difference between a Mount Everest Christian and an anthill Christian? Maybe it's not up to your church. Maybe it's not up to your preacher. Maybe it's not based on how you were raised. Maybe it's not based on how much you just know. Maybe it's a choice. Maybe it's a choice that we must make on a daily basis if we want to really live a fruitful life. As I've shared before, 
I uh, love a good documentary. I am a super big history nerd, and uh, I also love sports documentaries. And one of the things, one of the themes that I've noticed about sports documentaries in particular is that these interviews always ask the same thing: that what is the difference between a good per, good athlete and a great athlete? What's the difference between a good fighter and a great fighter? And they all have the same thing: it says how far you're willing to go, how disciplined you really can be. I think there's some truth there for the Christian life. That if you're here just to kind of check a box, then an afternoon breeze may blow you over. But if you shape your life around those four disciplines, faith, prayer, obedience, and dependence, then you will stand the test of times. The difference between a Mount Everest Christian and an Anhill Christian is a matter of choice. Faith, prayer, obedience to God's word, and dependence upon the Spirit. Before I close, I'm just going to ask you four different questions. And these are the same questions that I asked myself this week. If you are on the edge, if you are like this, if you're basically one stiff breeze away, one YouTube video, one more disappointment with God, if you're very close to breaking, then let me just ask you four different questions. Number one is, how is your prayer life? Do you go to the Lord with your concerns? How is your faith? Let me just say it this way. If your faith is too small, if you have a sleepy prayer life, then what does that reveal? It reveals your view of God is too small. Because if I think we see God as he truly is, then our faith will be reinvigorated and our prayer life will not stop, that we will pray without ceasing. Discipline number three is how is your obedience to God's word? That's what he says in verse 15. That if you love me, you will keep my commandments. My question for you is, how is your obedience to God's word? Do you care if you obey God's word? Do you want to be used by God? Like I said, if you're here just to check a box, okay. But you're not really living a fruitful life. You're very fragile. You will probably fall apart at the first trial that you face. If you struggle with obedience to God's word, then my first question is, do you know God's word? And then do you have a passion to follow it? And then discipline number four is, how is your dependence upon the spirit? You know, um, that Thursday morning I had already pretty much finished, finished most of my sermon. And I asked myself those four questions. How's my faith? How's my prayer life? How's my obedience to God's word? And how is my dependence upon the spirit? And what I noticed is I felt shame. But shame is not of God. That is of your enemy, Satan. God doesn't heap shame upon our shoulders for our many failures. He heaps love and forgiveness upon our shoulders and mercy. He is a loving father. Desiring you to approach him, desiring you to know him, desiring you to walk up to him like a young child, desiring you to ask. So let us shift from fragile to fruitful by having the discipline of faith, prayer, obedience, and dependence upon him. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, I... I just pray for all those that are here. Let me pray first. If there's someone here that does not know you as Savior, they do not have a personal relationship with you, they have no idea what I'm talking about, okay, this morning. I pray that they would go to you, 
Because you are a good and loving Father and that they would believe in you as their Lord and as their Savior and trust in you and have faith and that that faith would convert their soul from darkness into light. Lord, I pray for those that are here that are Christians. Lord, we all have times in our life where our faith is hanging on by a thread. And Lord, I pray that we would not just use it as an excuse to walk away, but we would see it as it is. And Lord, that we would reinvest in in being disciplined in our life to have our faith grow and have a vibrant prayer life and be obedient to your word and be dependent on your spirit. Lord, we are all flawed. But Lord, I just pray that we would love you. And Lord, we thank you for the grace and love that you show us. We thank you for your character. We thank you for the mercy that we receive every day. We thank you that we can come before you to the throne of grace to receive mercy in a time of need. Lord, we thank you that you're a perfect father. Thank you for my church. We lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.